Chapter Twenty Eight A of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Twenty Eight A. The Killing of the Tree Spirit. One. The Whitsuntide Mummers It remains to ask what light the custom of killing the divine king or priest sheds upon the special subject of our inquiry. In an earlier part of this work we saw reason to suppose that the king of the wood at Naimi was regarded as an incarnation of a tree spirit, or of the spirit of vegetation, and that as such he would be endowed, in the belief of his worshippers, with a magical power of making the trees to bear fruit, the crops to grow, and so on. His life must therefore have been held very precious by his worshippers, and was probably hedged in by a system of elaborate precautions or taboos, like those by which, in so many places, the life of the man-god has been guarded against the malignant influence of demons and sorcerers. But we have seen that the very value attached to the life of the man-god necessitates his violent death as the only means of preserving it from the inevitable decay of age. The same reasoning would apply to the king of the wood. He, too, had to be killed in order that the divine spirit, incarnate in him, might be transferred in its integrity to his successor. The rule that he held office till a stronger should slay him might be supposed to secure both the preservation of his divine life in full vigour and its transference to a suitable successor as soon as that vigour began to be impaired. For so long as he could maintain his position by the strong hand, it might be inferred that his natural force was not abated, whereas his defeat and death at the hands of another proved that his strength was beginning to fail, and that it was time his divine life should be lodged in a less dilapidated tabernacle. This explanation of the rule that the king of the wood had to be slain by his successor at least renders that rule perfectly intelligible. It is strongly supported by the theory and practice of the Shilluk, who put their divine king to death at the first signs of failing health, lest his decrepitude should entail a corresponding failure of vital energy on the corn, the cattle, and men. Moreover, it is countenanced by the analogy of the Chitome, upon whose life the existence of the world was supposed to hang, and who was therefore slain by his successor as soon as he showed signs of breaking up. Again, the terms on which in later times the King of Calicut held office are identical with those attached to the office of King of the Wood, except that whereas the former might be assailed by a candidate at any time, the King of Calicut might only be attacked once every twelve years. But as the leave granted to the King of Calicut to reign so long as he could defend himself against all comers was a mitigation of the old rule which set a fixed term to his life, so we may conjecture that the similar permission granted to the King of the Wood was a mitigation of an older custom of putting him to death at the end of a definite period. In both cases the new rule gave to the God-man at least a chance for his life which, under the old rule, was denied him, 
and people probably reconciled themselves to the change by reflecting that so long as the god-man could maintain himself by the sword against all assaults, there was no reason to apprehend that the fatal decay had set in. The conjecture that the king of the wood was formally put to death at the expiry of a fixed time, without being allowed a chance for his life, will be confirmed if evidence can be adduced of a custom of periodically killing his counterparts, the human representatives of the tree-spirit, in northern Europe. Now, in point of fact, such a custom has left unmistakable traces of itself in the rural festivals of the peasantry. To take examples. At Niederpöring, in Lower Bavaria, the Whitsuntide representative of the tree-spirit, the Pfingstel, as he was called, was clad from top to toe in leaves and flowers. On his head he wore a high-pointed cap, the ends of which rested on his shoulders, only two holes being left in it for his eyes. The cap was covered with water-flowers and surmounted with a nosegay of peonies. The sleeves of his coat were also made of water-plants, and the rest of his body was enveloped in alder and hazel-leaves. On each side of him marched a boy holding up one of the Pfingstel's arms. These two boys carried drawn swords, and so did most of the others who formed the procession. They stopped at every house where they hoped to receive a present, and the people, in hiding, soused the leaf-clad boy with water. All rejoiced when he was well drenched. Finally he waded into the brook up to his middle, whereupon one of the boys, standing on the bridge, pretended to cut off his head. At Wormlingen in Swabia, a score of young fellows dressed themselves on Whit Monday in white shirts and white trousers, with red scarves round their waists and swords hanging from the scarves. They ride on horseback into the wood, led by two trumpeters blowing their trumpets. In the wood they cut down leafy oak branches, in which they envelop from head to foot him who was the last of their number to ride out of the village. His legs, however, are encased separately, so that he may be able to mount his horse again. Further, they give him a long artificial neck, with an artificial head and a false face on the top of it. Then a may-tree is cut, generally an aspen or beech, about ten feet high, and being decked with coloured handkerchiefs and ribbons, it is entrusted to a special may-bearer. The cavalcade then returns with music and song to the village. Amongst the personages who figure in the procession are a Moorish king, with a sooty face and a crown on his head, a Dr. Ironbeard, a corporal, and an executioner. They halt on the village green, and each of the characters makes a speech in rhyme. The executioner announced that the leaf-clad man has been condemned to death, and cuts off his false head. Then the riders race to the may-tree, which has been set up a little way off. The first man who succeeds in wrenching it from the ground as he gallops past, keeps it with all its decorations. The ceremony is observed every second or third year. In Saxony and Thuringen there is a Whitsuntide ceremony called Chasing the Wild Man Out of the Bush, or Fetching the Wild Man Out of the Wood. A young fellow is enveloped in leaves or moss, and called the Wild Man. He hides in the wood, and the other lads of the village go out to seek him. They find him, lead him captive out of the wood, and fire at him with blank muskets. 
he falls like dead to the ground, but a lad dressed as a doctor bleeds him, and he comes to life again. At this they rejoice, and binding him fast on a wagon, take him to the village, where they tell all the people how they have caught the wild man. At every house they receive a gift. In the Erzgebirge the following custom was annually observed at Shrovetide, about the beginning of the seventeenth century. Two men disguised as wild men, the one in brushwood and moss, the other in straw, were led about the streets, and at last taken to the market-place, where they were chased up and down, shot and stabbed. Before falling they reeled about with strange gestures, and spurted blood on the people from bladders which they carried. When they were down, the huntsmen placed them on boards, and carried them to the ale-house, the miners marching beside them, and winding blasts on their mining-tools, as if they had taken a noble head of game. A very similar shrove-tide custom is still observed near Schluckenau in Bohemia. A man dressed up as a wild man is chased through several streets, till he comes to a narrow lane across which a cord is stretched. He stumbles over the cord, and falling to the ground, is overtaken and caught by his pursuers. The executioner runs up, and stabs with his sword a bladder filled with blood, which the wild man wears round his body. So the wild man dies, while a stream of blood reddens the ground. Next day a straw man, made up to look like the wild man, is placed on a litter, and accompanied by a great crowd, is taken to a pool into which it is thrown by the executioner. The ceremony is called burying the carnival. In Semitz, Bohemia, the custom of beheading the king is observed on Whit Monday. A group of young people disguise themselves. Each is girt with a girdle of bark, and carries a wooden sword and a trumpet of willow bark. The king wears a robe of tree-bark adorned with flowers. On his head is a crown of bark decked with flowers and branches. His feet are wound about with ferns. A mask hides his face, and for a sceptre he has a hawthorn switch in his hand. A lad leads him through the village by a rope fastened to his foot, while the rest dance about, blow their trumpets, and whistle. In every farmhouse the king is chased round the room, and one of the troop, amid much noise and outcry, strikes with his sword a blow on the king's robe of bark, till it rings again. Then a gratuity is demanded. The ceremony of decapitation, which is here somewhat slurred over, is carried out with a greater semblance of reality in other parts of Bohemia. Thus, in some villages of the Königgrätz district, on Whit Monday, the girls assemble under one lime-tree, and the young men under another, all dressed in their best, and tricked out with ribbons. The young men twine a garland for the queen, and the girls another for the king. When they have chosen the king and queen, they all go in procession, two and two, to the ale-house, from the balcony of which the crier proclaims the names of the king and queen. Both are then invested with the insignia of their office, and are crowned with the garlands, while the music plays up. Then someone gets on a bench, and accuses the king of various offences, such as ill-treating the cattle. The king appeals to witnesses, and a trial ensues, at the close of which the judge, who carries a white wand as his badge of office, pronounces a verdict of guilty or not guilty. If the verdict is guilty, the judge breaks his wand, and the king kneels on a white cloth, 
all heads are bared, and a soldier sets three or four hats, one above the other, on his majesty's head. The judge then pronounces the word guilty thrice in a loud voice, and orders the crier to behead the king. The crier obeys by striking off the king's hats with his wooden sword. But perhaps for our purposes the most instructive of these mimic executions is the following Bohemian one. In some places of the Pilsen district, Bohemia, on Whit Monday, the king is dressed in bark, ornamented with flowers and ribbons. He wears a crown of gilt paper and rides a horse, which is also decked with flowers. Attended by a judge, an executioner, and other characters, and followed by a train of soldiers, all mounted, he rides to the village square, where a hut or arbour of green boughs has been erected under the may-trees, which are firs, freshly cut, peeled to the top, and dressed with flowers and ribbons. After the dames and maidens of the village have been criticised, and a frog beheaded, the cavalcade rides to a place previously determined upon in a straight, broad street. Here they draw up two lines, and the king takes to flight. He is given a short start, and rides off at full speed, pursued by the whole troop. If they fail to catch him, he remains king for another year, and his companions must pay his score at the alehouse in the evening. But if they overtake him and catch him, he is scourged with hazel-rods, and beaten with wooden swords, and compelled to dismount. Then the executioner asks, "'Shall I behead this king?' The answer is given, "'Behead him!' The executioner brandishes his axe, and with the words, "'One, two, three, let the king headless be!' he strikes off the king's crown. Amid the loud cries of the bystanders, the king sinks to the ground. Then he is laid on a bier, and carried to the nearest farmhouse. In most of the personages who are thus slain in mimicry, it is impossible not to recognise representatives of the tree-spirit or spirit of vegetation, as he is supposed to manifest himself in spring. The bark, leaves and flowers in which the actors are dressed, and the season of the year at which they appear, show that they belong to the same class as the grass-king, king of the may, jack in the green, and other representatives of the vernal spirit of vegetation, which we examined in an earlier part of this work. As if to remove any possible doubt on this head, we find that in two cases these slain men are brought into direct connection with may-trees, which are the impersonal, as the may-king, grass-king, and so forth, are the personal representatives of the tree-spirit. The drenching of the Pfingstel with water, and his wading up to the middle into the brook, are therefore, no doubt, rain-charms, like those which have been already described. But if these personages represent, as they certainly do, the spirit of vegetation in spring, the question arises, why kill them? What is the object of slaying the spirit of vegetation at any time, and above all in spring, when his services are most wanted? The only probable answer to this question seems to be given in the explanation already proposed of the custom of killing the divine king or priest. The divine life, incarnate in a material and mortal body, is liable to be tainted and corrupted by the weakness of the frail medium in which it is for a time enshrined. 
and if it is to be saved from the increasing enfeeblement which it must necessarily share with its human incarnation as he advances in years, it must be detached from him before, or at least as soon as, he exhibits signs of decay, in order to be transferred to a vigorous successor. This is done by killing the old representative of the god, and conveying the divine spirit from him to a new incarnation. The killing of the god, that is, of his human incarnation, is therefore merely a necessary step to his revival or resurrection in a better form. Far from being an extinction of the divine spirit, it is only the beginning of a purer and stronger manifestation of it. If this explanation holds good of the custom of killing divine kings and priests in general, it is still more obviously applicable to the custom of annually killing the representative of the tree spirit or spirit of vegetation in spring. For the decay of plant life in winter is readily interpreted by primitive man as an enfeeblement of the spirit of vegetation. The spirit has, he thinks, grown old and weak, and must therefore be renovated by being slain and brought to life in a younger and fresher form. Thus the killing of the representative of the tree spirit in spring is regarded as a means to promote and quicken the growth of vegetation. For the killing of the tree spirit is associated always, we must suppose, implicitly, and sometimes explicitly also, with a revival or resurrection of him in a more youthful and vigorous form. So, in the Saxon and Thuringen custom, after the wild man has been shot, he is brought to life again by a doctor. And in the Wurmningen ceremony, there figures a Dr. Ironbeard, who probably once played a similar part. Certainly, in another spring ceremony, which will be described presently, Dr. Ironbeard pretends to restore a dead man to life. But of this revival or resurrection of the god, we shall have more to say anon. The points of similarity between these North European personages and the subject of our inquiry, the king of the wood or priest of Nemi, are sufficiently striking. In these northern maskers we see kings, whose dress of bark and leaves, along with the hut of green boughs and the fir-trees, under which they hold their court, proclaim them unmistakably as, like their Italian counterpart, kings of the wood. Like him they die a violent death, but like him they may escape from it for a time by their bodily strength and agility. For in several of these northern customs the flight and pursuit of the king is a prominent part of the ceremony, and in one case at least, if the king can outrun his pursuers, he retains his life and his office for another year. In this last case, the king in fact holds office on condition of running for his life once a year, just as the king of Calicut in later times held office on condition of defending his life against all comers once every twelve years, and just as the priest of Nemi held office on condition of defending himself against any assault at any time. In every one of these instances the life of the god-man is prolonged on condition of his showing, in a severe physical contest of fight or flight, that his bodily strength is not decayed, and that therefore the violent death, which sooner or later is inevitable, may for the present be postponed. With regard to flight, it is noticeable that flight figured conspicuously both in the legend and in the practice of the king of the wood. 
he had to be a runaway slave in memory of the flight of Orestes, the traditional founder of the worship. Hence the kings of the wood are described by an ancient writer as both strong of hand and fleet of foot. Perhaps if we knew the ritual of the Arician grove fully, we might find that the king was allowed a chance for his life by flight, like his bohemian brother. I have already conjectured that the annual flight of the priestly king of Rome, Regifugium, was at first a flight of the same kind. In other words, that he was originally one of those divine kings, who are either put to death after a fixed period, or allowed to prove by the strong hand or the fleet foot that their divinity is vigorous and unimpaired. One more point of resemblance may be noted between the Italian king of the wood and his northern counterparts. In Saxony and Thuringen, the representative of the tree spirit, after being killed, is brought to life again by a doctor. This is exactly what legend affirmed to have happened to the first king of the wood at Nemi, Hippolytus or Virbius, who, after he had been killed by his horses, was restored to life by the physician Esculapius. Such a legend tallies well with the theory that the slaying of the king of the wood was only a step to his revival or resurrection in his successor. 2. Burying the Carnival Thus far I have offered an explanation of the rule which required that the priest of Nemi should be slain by his successor. The explanation claims to be no more than probable. Our scanty knowledge of the custom and of its history forbids it to be more but its probability will be augmented in proportion to the extent to which the motives and modes of thought which it assumes can be proved to have operated in primitive society. Hitherto, the god with whose death and resurrection we have been chiefly concerned has been the tree-god. But if I can show that the custom of killing the god and the belief in his resurrection originated, or at least existed, in the hunting and pastoral stage of society, when the slain god was an animal, and that it survived into the agricultural stage, when the slain god was the corn, or a human being representing the corn, the probability of my explanation would have been considerably increased. This I shall attempt to do in the sequel, and in the course of the discussion I hope to clear up some obscurities which still remain and to answer some objections which may have suggested themselves to the reader. We start from the point at which we left off, the spring customs of European peasantry. Besides the ceremonies already described, there are two kindred sets of observances, in which the simulated death of a divine or supernatural being is a conspicuous feature. In one of them, the being whose death is dramatically represented is a personification of the carnival. In the other, it is death himself. The former ceremony falls naturally at the end of the carnival. Either on the last day of that merry season, namely Shrove Tuesday, or on the first day of Lent, namely Ash Wednesday. The date of the other ceremony, the carrying or driving out of death, as it is commonly called, is not so uniformly fixed. Generally, it is the fourth Sunday in Lent, which hence goes by the name of Dead Sunday, but in some places the celebration falls a week earlier, in others, as among the Czechs of Bohemia, a week later, 
while in certain German villages of Moravia it is held on the first Sunday after Easter. Perhaps, as has been suggested, the date may originally have been variable, depending on the appearance of the first swallow or some other herald of the spring. Some writers regard the ceremony as Slavonic in its origin. Grimm thought it was a festival of the new year with the old Slavs, who began their year in March. We shall first take examples of the mimic death of the carnival, which always falls before the other in the calendar. At Frosinone, in Latium, about halfway between Rome and Naples, the dull monotony of life in a provincial Italian town is agreeably broken on the last day of the carnival, by the ancient festival known as the Radica. About four o'clock in the afternoon the town band, playing lively tunes, and followed by a great crowd, proceeds to the Piazza del Plebiscito, where is the sub-prefecture, as well as the rest of the government buildings. Here, in the middle of the square, the eyes of the expectant multitude are greeted by the sight of an immense car decked with many-coloured festoons and drawn by four horses. Mounted on the car is a huge chair on which sits enthroned the majestic figure of the carnival, a man of stucco about nine feet high with a rubicund and smiling countenance. Enormous boots, a tin helmet like those which grace the heads of officers of the Italian marine, and a coat of many colours embellished with strange devices, adorn the outward man of this stately personage. His left hand rests on the arm of the chair, while with his right he gracefully salutes the crowd, being moved to this act of civility by a string which is pulled by a man who modestly shrinks from publicity under the mercy seat. And now the crowd, surging excitedly round the car, gives vent to its feelings in wild cries of joy, gentle and simple being mixed up together, and all dancing furiously the saltarello. A special feature of the festival is that everyone must carry in his hand what is called a radica, or root, by which is meant a huge leaf of the aloe, or rather the agave. Any one who ventured into the crowd without such a leaf would be unceremoniously hustled out of it, unless indeed he bore as a substitute a large cabbage at the end of a long stick, or a bunch of grass curiously plaited. When the multitude, after a short turn, has escorted the slow-moving car to the gate of the sub-prefecture, they halt, and the car, jostling over the uneven ground, rumbles into the courtyard. A hush now falls on the crowd, their subdued voices sounding, according to the description of one who has heard them, like the murmur of a troubled sea. All eyes are turned anxiously to the door from which the sub-prefect himself and the other representatives of the majesty of the law are expected to issue and pay their homage to the hero of the hour. A few moments of suspense and then a storm of cheers and hand-clapping salutes the appearance of the dignitaries as they file out and, descending the staircase, take their place in the procession. The hymn of the carnival is now thundered out after which, amid a deafening roar, aloe leaves and cabbages are whirled aloft, and descend impartially on the heads of the just and the unjust, who lend fresh zest to the proceedings by engaging in a free fight. 
When these preliminaries have been concluded to the satisfaction of all concerned, the procession gets under way. The rear is brought up by a cart laden with barrels of wine and policemen, the latter engaged in the congenial task of serving out wine to all who ask for it, while a most internecine struggle, accompanied by a copious discharge of yells, blows, and blasphemy, goes on among the surging crowd at the cart's tail, in their anxiety not to miss the glorious opportunity of intoxicating themselves at the public expense. Finally, after the procession has paraded the principal streets in this majestic manner, the effigy of Carnival is taken to the middle of a public square, stripped of his finery, laid on a pile of wood, and burnt amid the cries of the multitude, who, thundering out once more the song of the Carnival, fling their so-called roots on the pyre, and give themselves up without restraint to the pleasures of the dance. In the Abruzzi, a pasteboard figure of the carnival is carried by four grave-diggers with pipes in their mouths and bottles of wine slung at their shoulder-belts. In front walks the wife of the carnival, dressed in mourning and dissolved in tears. From time to time the company halts, and while the wife addresses the sympathising public, the grave-diggers refresh the inner man with a pull at the bottle. In the open square the mimic corpse is laid on a pyre, until the roll of drums, the shrill screams of the women, and the gruffer cries of the men, a light is set to it. While the figure burns, chestnuts are thrown about among the crowd. Sometimes the carnival is represented by a straw man, at the top of a pole which is borne through the town by a troop of mummers in the course of the afternoon. When evening comes on, four of the mummers hold out a quilt or sheet by the corners, and the figure of the carnival is made to tumble into it. The procession is then resumed, the performers weeping crocodile tears, and emphasising the poignancy of their grief by the help of saucepans and dinner-bells. Sometimes again, in the Abruzzi, the dead carnival is personified by a living man who lies in a coffin, attended by another who acts the priest, and dispenses holy water in great profusion from a bathing-tub. At Lerida in Catalonia, the funeral of the carnival was witnessed by an English traveller in 1877. On the last Sunday of the carnival, a great procession of infantry, cavalry, and maskers of many sorts, some on horseback and some in carriages, escorted the grand car of His Grace Pau Pi, as the effigy was called, in triumph through the principal streets. For three days the revelry ran high, and then at midnight, on the last day of the carnival, the same procession again wound through the streets, but under a different aspect, and for a different end. The triumphal car was exchanged for a hearse, in which reposed the effigy of his dead grace. A troop of maskers, who in the first procession had played the part of students of folly, with many a merry quip and jest, now, robed as priests and bishops, paced slowly along, holding aloft huge lighted tapers, and singing a dirge. All the mummers wore crape, and all the horsemen carried blazing flambeau. Down the high street, between the lofty, many-storied, and balconied houses, where every window, every balcony, every housetop, was crammed with a dense mass of spectators, all dressed and masked in fantastic gorgeousness, the procession took its melancholy way. 
Over the scene flashed and played the shifting cross-lights and shadows from the moving torches. Red and blue Bengal lights flared up and died out again, and above the trampling of the horses and the measured tread of the marching multitude rose the voices of the priests chanting the requiem, while the military bands struck in with the solemn roll of the muffled drums. On reaching the principal square the procession halted, a burlesque funeral oration was pronounced over the defunct Pi, and the lights were extinguished. Immediately the devil and his angels darted from the crowd, seized the body, and fled away with it, hotly pursued by the whole multitude, yelling, screaming, and cheering. Naturally the fiends were overtaken and dispersed, and the sham corpse, rescued from their clutches, was laid in a grave that had been made ready for its reception. Thus the carnival of 1877 at Lerida died and was buried. A ceremony of the same sort is observed in Provence on Ash Wednesday. An effigy called Caramantran, whimsically attired, is drawn in a chariot or borne on a litter, accompanied by the populace in grotesque costumes, who carry gourds full of wine and drain them with all the marks, real or affected, of intoxication. At the head of the procession are some men disguised as judges and barristers, and a tall, gaunt personage who masquerades as Lent. Behind them follow young people mounted on miserable hacks and attired as mourners, who pretend to bewail the fate that is in store for Caramantran. In the principal square the procession halts, the tribunal is constituted, and Caramantran placed at the bar. After a formal trial he is sentenced to death, amid the groans of the mob. The barrister who defended him embraces his client for the last time, the officers of justice do their duty. The condemned is set with his back to a wall and hurried into eternity under a shower of stones. The sea or a river receives his mangled remains. Throughout nearly the whole of the Ardennes, it was and still is customary on Ash Wednesday to burn an effigy which is supposed to represent the carnival, while appropriate verses are sung round the blazing figure. Very often an attempt is made to fashion the effigy in the likeness of the husband who is reputed to be least faithful to his wife of any in the village. As might perhaps have been anticipated, the distinction of being selected for portraiture under these painful circumstances has a slight tendency to breed domestic jars, especially when the portrait is burnt in front of the house of the gay deceiver whom it represents while a powerful chorus of caterwauls, groans, and other melodious sounds bears public testimony to the opinion which his friends and neighbours entertain of his private virtues. In some villages of the Ardennes, a young man of flesh and blood, dressed up in hay and straw, used to act the part of Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, as the personification of the carnival is often called in France, after the last day of the period which he personates. He was brought before a mock tribunal, and being condemned to death, was placed with his back to a wall, like a soldier at a military execution, and fired at with blank cartridges. At Vrigne au Bois, one of these harmless buffoons, named Thierry, was accidentally killed by a wad that had been left in a musket of the firing party. When poor Shrove Tuesday dropped under the fire, 
The applause was loud and long. He did it so naturally. But when he did not get up again, they ran to him and found him a corpse. Since then there have been no more of these mock executions in the Ardennes. In Normandy, on the evening of Ash Wednesday, it used to be the custom to hold a celebration called the Burial of Shrove Tuesday. A squalid effigy, scantily clothed in rags, a battered old hat crushed down on his dirty face, his great round paunch stuffed with straw, represented the disreputable old rake who, after a long course of dissipation, was now about to suffer for his sins. Hoisted on the shoulders of a sturdy fellow who pretended to stagger under the burden, this popular personification of the carnival promenaded the streets for the last time in a manner the reverse of triumphal. Preceded by a drummer and accompanied by a jeering rabble, among whom the urchins and all the tag, rag and bobtail of the town mustered in great force, the figure was carried about by the flickering light of torches to the discordant din of shovels and tongs, pots and pans, horns and kettles, mingled with hootings, groans and hisses. From time to time the procession halted, and a champion of morality accused the broken-down old sinner of all the excesses he had committed, and for which he was now about to be burnt alive. The culprit, having nothing to urge in his own defence, was thrown on a heap of straw, a torch was put to it, and a great blaze shot up, to the delight of the children, who frisked round it, screaming out some old popular verses about the death of the carnival. Sometimes the effigy was rolled down the slope of a hill before being burnt. At saint Lo, the ragged effigy of Shrove Tuesday was followed by his widow, a big burly lout dressed as a woman with a crape veil, who emitted sounds of lamentation and woe in a stentorian voice. After being carried about the streets on a litter, attended by a crowd of maskers, the figure was thrown into the river Vire. The final scene has been graphically described by Madame Octave Feuilly, as she witnessed it in her childhood some sixty years ago. My parents invited friends to see, from the top of the tower of Jeanne Cuillard, the funeral procession passing. It was there that, quaffing lemonade, the only refreshment allowed because of the fast, we witnessed at nightfall a spectacle of which I shall always preserve a lively recollection. At our feet flowed the Vire under its old stone bridge. On the middle of the bridge lay the figure of Shrove Tuesday on a litter of leaves, surrounded by scores of maskers dancing, singing, and carrying torches. Some of them, in their motley costumes, ran along the parapet like fiends. The rest, worn out with their revels, sat on the posts and dozed. Soon the dancing stopped, and some of the troop, seizing a torch, set fire to the effigy, after which they flung it into the river with redoubled shouts and clamour. The man of straw, soaked with resin, floated away burning down the stream of the Vire, lighting up with its funeral fires the woods on the bank and the battlements of the old castle in which Louis Ange and Francis Premier had slept. When the last glimmer of the blazing phantom had vanished, like a falling star at the end of the valley, every one withdrew, crowd and maskers alike, and we quitted the ramparts with our guests. In the neighbourhood of Tübingen, on Shrove Tuesday, a straw man, called the Shrove-Tide Bear, is made up. 
He is dressed in a pair of old trousers, and a fresh black pudding, or two squirts filled with blood, are inserted in his neck. After a formal condemnation, he is beheaded, laid in a coffin, and on Ash Wednesday is buried in the churchyard. This is called burying the carnival. Amongst some of the Saxons of Transylvania, the carnival is hanged. Thus at Brelle, on Ash Wednesday or Shrove Tuesday, two white and two chestnut horses draw a sledge on which is placed a straw man swathed in a white cloth. Beside him is a cartwheel which is kept turning round. Two lads, disguised as old men, follow the sledge lamenting. The rest of the village lads, mounted on horseback and decked with ribbons, accompany the procession, which is headed by two girls, crowned with evergreen and drawn in a wagon or sledge. A trial is held under a tree, at which lads disguised as soldiers pronounce sentence of death. The two old men try to rescue the straw man and to fly with him, but to no purpose. He is caught by the two girls and handed over to the executioner, who hangs him on a tree. In vain the old men try to climb up the tree and take him down. They always tumble down, and at last in despair they throw themselves on the ground and weep and howl for the hanged man. An official then makes a speech in which he declares that the carnival was condemned to death because he had done them harm, by wearing out their shoes and making them tired and sleepy. At the burial of Carnival, in Lech Rhein, a man dressed as a woman in black clothes is carried on a litter or bier by four men. He is lamented over by men disguised as women in black clothes, then thrown down before the village dung-heap, drenched with water, buried in the dung-heap, and covered with straw. On the evening of Shrove Tuesday, the Estonians make a straw figure called Metzik, or Wood Spirit. One year it is dressed with a man's coat and hat, next year with a hood and a petticoat. This figure is stuck on a long pole, carried across the boundary of the village with loud cries of joy, and fastened to the top of a tree in the woods. The ceremony is believed to be a protection against all kinds of misfortune. Sometimes at these Shrovetide or Lenten ceremonies, the resurrection of the pretended dead person is enacted, Thus, in some parts of Swabia, on Shrove Tuesday, Dr. Ironbeard professes to bleed a sick man, who thereupon falls as dead to the ground. But the doctor at last restores him to life by blowing air into him through a tube. In the Hartz Mountains, when carnival is over, a man is laid on a baking trough and carried with dirges to a grave. But in the grave a glass of brandy is buried instead of the man. A speech is delivered, and then the people return to the village green or meeting-place, where they smoke the long clay pipes which are distributed at funerals. On the morning of Shrove Tuesday in the following year, the brandy is dug up, and the festival begins by everyone tasting the spirit, which, as the phrase goes, has come to life again. End of chapter 28 A